Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, the podcast recorded by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is recorded on the unceded lands of the Gayomago people and is supported by the vital leadership pathways of the United Church Synod in New South Wales and ACT. My guest today is Adam Kotzko. Adam, welcome along. Thanks for having me. Very excited to talk to you today. Uh, for those who don't know, Adam is uh, assistant professor in the Shimmer Great Book School at North Central College. Uh, his books include uh, Neoliberalism's Demons, and today we are talking about his new book, uh, What is Theology, Christian Thought and Contemporary Life, out now with Fordham University Press. Adam, very excited to talk uh, about this book. I've been really enjoying reading it today. So today, reading it the last couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> now, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people uh, and I've asked them at time, from time to time, you know, what's their reason for getting into theology or how do they end up in theology? And uh, I don't know if I've ever had this answer where you write, um, I chose to pursue theology out of a sense that Christianity was in the process of ruining my life and the lives of those around me, and would continue to do so until I figured out how it was doing so and how to make it stop. So I guess two questions. First of all, how's that been going for you? Uh, and, and I guess how does that, I guess, that motivation lead to this book, which you write represents a series of approaches to theology as a critical human discourse in light of an ever-expanding awareness to the degree that Christianity is ruining all our lives. So yeah, let's 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 start start there. Yeah, start. That's uh, a bold claim. Um, it's it's a true claim. I mean, it's phrased in a way that you might think that it's a joke. Um, but yeah, one of the the very difficult things for me to come to terms with um, as I was growing up and as I uh, became progressively more kind of alienated from uh, the conservative evangelical circles that I was, uh, growing up in and that I continued to live in, uh, through college was that this just wasn't working, Mm. that I was trying to take it as seriously as possible. Um, I was trying to live up to the expectations. I was trying to be a part of that community as much as possible. And it simply wasn't working. And everything about that situation was telling me that it must be my own personal fault and that I need to, Mm. Uh, continue to try harder, continue to throw myself more into it, continue to to give more and more of my life to something that wasn't working. And finally being able to step back and see that dynamic for what it is and see how much historic Christianity has been based on that Mm -hmm. dynamic of blaming the individual for systemic uh, failures, for kind of uh, putting this pressure of guilt and shame on people for things that are not their fault and mm. that they shouldn't be uh, guilty or ashamed about, that this really uh, was an eye-opening thing. And it became kind of a, para- a paradigm where I was seeing that everywhere I looked in American culture and specifically, but I think that um, in a lot of Western culture as well. Mm. Mm. Thank you for that. It, it, I remember it was a line you were talking about the um, that almost like theology is what you do when it isn't working, right? Like for those whom, whom this works very well, um, there's no need to really think about it a lot. Uh, it, it then emerges out of that that struggle. So I guess this this interest and this desire to figure this out to push against the way it's ruining lives leads to kind of a particular approach to theology in this political theological paradigm. So maybe for those who 
haven't really encountered this before. I guess how would you characterize what political theology at least is for you, whether or not yeah. like it is for others? Um, and I guess particularly I'm interested in, in there's a few points in the book where you push toward like the need for political theology to be more than just a diagnostic tool, that there's yeah. still also a constructive imaginative component to political theology. So, so I think that would be interesting to, to have in the, in the conversation. Right. I mean, the term political theology is not especially illuminating or clear. <laughs> um, in some ways, it can be misleading because you might think, oh, you're doing like theology that's politically engaged. And mm-hmm. I think that that's redundant. I think that all, all theology has to do with the way that we live together in community. It, it, mm-hmm. there's, there's no non-political uh, theology. Um, the, as a name of a specific discipline and approach, it comes from... Um, you know, Carl Schmitt, who is um, in many ways a very despicable person, but came up with um, a very interesting approach to investigating parallels between ostensibly secular political institutions and theological systems. And his most famous parallel was between the idea of an absolute monarch who mm-hmm. has the ability to suspend the law and do whatever he wants and the idea of an almighty God who's able to perform miracles. And he tries to show that in the era of absolute monarchy that there was, um, that that aspect of God was especially emphasized in in theology. Um, And he has his own blinders. You know, he's a very authoritarian thinker. He really wants there to be, um, you know, a strong authoritarian ruler and, and his investigations all kind of tend toward that as did his political interventions in Germany. Mm. Um, but I thought you can take that, that basic insight into the idea that um, political systems um, broadly construed, including economic systems, mm. anywhere that there's like power at stake or where people are kind of interacting and negotiating with each other, that those systems will tend to echo or parallel um, theological systems. And Mm. the reason that this happens is that uh, there's two reasons. First, both political systems and theological systems aim to explain everything or account for everything. Um, A political system tries to account for every aspect of life. You know, there are laws that apply to every, everything that we do. Um, and similarly, theology tries to like shape mm. your entire life. But they're mm. also, both of those types of systems are also fragile in kind of the same way. Because they're making these kind of outsized claims about what they can do and what they can provide and how the world is going to work. And the world doesn't always work that way. <laughs> yeah. um, in theology, this is known as the problem of evil. You know, if God is so powerful, if God is so good, why do bad things keep happening? And similarly, in uh, political circles, this would be the problem of legitimacy. Like, mm. why are you guys in charge again? <laughs> like, this doesn't <laughs> seem to be going as well as you said. Um, and so I think that those the, the same ambitions and the same kind of pressures produce kind of the same structures under, under mm. similar historical circumstances. Oh, thanks for that. So the book kind of has this move, you almost talk about it as in like maybe the um, unexpected move from from the more constructive to the more critique. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think an important point that you note is like that 
that critique doesn't exist without a sense of hope, right? You're doing critique because there's hope in there. Um, and, and you speak a bit about your, your your own hope that continues to fuel this project. And I think that would be helpful for, for folks to think about, like in this this sense that, you know, because that's so often the the critique of critique or the pushback against um, a focused critique is, is you know, if you know, people feel like it feels negative. But like, um, yeah, to talk to me about, I guess, like that there is this, you know, hope within a, a critique of a political theological critique, this hope within this kind of uh, analysis of all this um, ruination. Right. I mean, I think um, in a way the, the type of political theological critique is um, grounded in heartbreak. <laughs> it's grounded in like disappointment. This did sound like a good idea. And there are um, great and liberating ideas in the Bible and in Christian theology um, you don't do this kind of investigation of like um, a, a detailed demolition of like Ku Klux Klan or Nazi ideology, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. they're just bad. Like it, it would be yeah. excessive, you know, you're trying to figure out what went wrong mm-hmm. because you think that it could have gone right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I returning to those earlier materials where I was trying to do um a more constructive theological concept. I was trying to find resources in Christianity for breaking with this individualistic uh, blame-based model. Um, And there are materials like that. Um, But I think that intellectual integrity and honesty requires that we grapple with all the other stuff that went wrong. Um, Like one of the things that I say in the intro um, is that we need to grapple with the way that Christianity has been, not been abused as, not been misunderstood as, but really been a tool of oppression. And we need to understand why these people who took Christianity in directions that we don't like or that we think are destructive, why they thought they were doing the right thing. Hmm. Um, I think that's the only assurance that we're not going to wind up doing apologetics for something that's going to wind up still hurting people. Hmm. Um, trying to find the, the bright side. Um, I sometimes think that, you know, the, the logical fallacy of, of no true Scotsman, mm. um, it should be called no true Christian. <laughs> because it's as though anything that anything that's bad by definition can't be Christian or mm. can't be part of Christianity. And I think that that type of simplistic thinking um, is present even in the most otherwise sophisticated and intellectually rigorous um, academic theology. It's mm. very hard to break out of. And that's mm. why I want to linger on the, the critical moment. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So in your kind of opening, after the uh, introductory remarks, in your introductory cha- in the opening chapter, considers and suggests a relationship between philosophy and theology. Uh, and you kind of take up Plato and Augustine and then, and then develop and push through. So, And you draw this kind of helpful distinction between the two. In the thing that makes them clash is that the Hebrew biblical tradition insists that there is a God-initiated encounter with God, that God is not merely something to be considered, but that God comes, unbidden and unannounced, to bestow promises and make demands. However, I guess where that, where that chapter is going is that despite this difference, um, you're arguing kind of both traditions in their own way can lead to a kind of political quietism uh, and a reflection of, on the self uh, over a commitment to political reform. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I want to talk a bit about that, how uh, 
yeah, that that argument, and I guess particularly how that connects to you know a particular historical moment uh, and the deprivation of a of a kind of a transcendental um, reference point. Yeah, um, to state it uh, kind of very simply, I think that the real difference between philosophy and theology is not the difference between faith and reason or between belief and, you know, um, knowledge or, you know, whatever type of kind of pejorative um, binary that you would uh, often hear. I think it's philosophy is seeking something that is perennially true, something that anybody can encounter and realize Mm -hmm. um, if they just think hard about it um, in almost any circumstance. Whereas theology is, as you point out, it's it, theology is historical. It's grounded in a particular story. Um, I was talking with my students about this, um, and the fact that every subsequent monotheistic religion, Christianity and Islam, and there are you know other more minor traditions, they don't say, "Hey, we discovered there's only one God, and uh, we should." worship him only, and let's just start from zero right now. They always want to make some type of connection to Judaism, even if often a negative one. You know, the the Jews betrayed the tradition and we're reviving it or something like that. But even as a negative point of reference, it's necessary. And I think that that points to the deep necessity of this historical claim and this, this desire to connect with an event, um, not just with an idea. Um, now the distinction between the two isn't ultra sharp and it isn't stable because this event is supposed to be universal in scope and implication. You know, God is the, you know, the, the Lord, your God who led you out of Egypt, but he's also the God of the whole world who created the whole world. And it was like that the whole time, even if he didn't, you know, foreground that or bring it to our attention in the same way, it was always like that. Um, and similarly, I think in um, Greco-Roman society and in uh, other traditions, I'm, I'm less familiar with, so I'm less confident making this claim, but it seems as though there's a tendency to say, okay, beneath the surface of all of these apparent multiple gods, there's still a deeper reality, maybe not one we interact with or worship in the same way, but they're all kind of an expression of this is the unified divinity or whatever. And so that's that's monotheism in a sense. And... Christians often found a lot of resources for thought in those philosophical monotheistic traditions. But even though they um, make many of the same claims, there is still this quantitative, <laughs> qualitative distinction uh, between the two, the historical claim. And I think in the chapter, I really kind of belabor this passage from Augustine where he starts off by admitting like Platonists, have figured out a lot of things about God that are true. Mm-hmm. But they're still bad and wrong <laughs> because they don't know about Jesus, they don't know about the Bible, they don't know about repentance, they don't know about the cross. And at some points he seems to be saying, like, even the things they get right, they're proud about them, and so that means that they're wrong. Like, they're wrong for being right in the wrong way. And I think this is him trying to thread that needle of there has to be a qualitative distinction even when they're saying things that are verbally and conceptually very, very similar. 
I think in a way they're like, he's responding to a threat, you know, like if all of this knowledge about God was possible without, um, you know, the letters of Paul and the gospels and things like this, um, then it would kind of threaten um, mm. the historical particularity that he very much wants to highlight and, and uh, connect himself with. Mm. So then I guess the push then is to like, I guess, get beyond the way both these traditions in their own way also then can, can lead to this right. moral abdication or like, you know, because like, you, you talk out like, you know, the, the Hebrew biblical tradition has this, you know, great push toward justice, but both these other traditions have this way of kind of like almost paying lip service to that, but, but also in their kind of distinct moves um, allow for, you know, this, uh, you know, abdication of political responsibility or, or, or a turn toward the self and personhood over over the political. Um, so, how then does does what then does theology have within it, or political or theological power to have within it to kind of push against that 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 move that we see so much? Yeah, I mean, the move is the way they they can both get into this um, quietistic, um, like very non-political space is by saying, well, you know, this world isn't adequate to uh, the truth that we know. Mm -hmm. And we can, we can contemplate this truth. Uh, we can participate in it in a way, you know, through the sacraments or, or something like that, but we can never expect the world to really live up to that. And therefore it, it becomes a kind of resigned, um, a resigned fatalism. Um, it's, you know, I choose Plato and Augustine in part because their greatest works are political works, you know, the Republic and the City of God. And yet they both wind up in this kind of like just uh, care of the self type of mm. uh, my tend your own garden type of space. Um, and I think that one thing that the political theological perspective gives us is that it deprives us of that alibi of like, I'm just doing theology or I'm just contemplating over here and, you know, let the world go to hell. That's not what's important that the, the, the philosophical and theological concepts are doing political work and they are reshaping the world. Um, whether we like it or not, you mm -hmm. know, like, um, Augustine's, um, decision to, you know, favor the church, um, over like social reform, like that is a political decision. Mm. And that does lead to things like the church basically endorsing the imperial structure and things like that. Um, whether there was a realistic opening at his time or not, I don't know, but he certainly didn't um, take advantage of it if there was one. Mm. And I think that um, if we acknowledge that, that theology is always about politics and always about the way we live together, then the pose of saying, I am, I'm not participating in that. I'm not, that's not my responsibility. That's politics over there. And I'm doing theology over here. Mm. I think that that, that falls apart. Mm. Thank you. I think that's, that's really helpful. And it's a, I really um, appreciated that chapter a lot and helping to set up that distinction really well and clear. So, um, you then have a chapter of oh, a couple of chapters of time. You have one on resurrection without religion, uh, where you take up a social relational and religionless methodology to approach the question of the resurrection of the dead. And this is a methodology you mentioned you've used uh, before. Um, 
you know, you, you're on Twitter a, a lot like I am and, I mean, bodily resurrection comes up every couple of months, it seems, to divide and, and entertain and, and uh, foil Christian Twitter. So, so I guess, what are you offering to the discourse here, uh, <laughs> Adam? I guess, like, how does this, how does this maybe find, find our way out of, of, of constantly getting dragged into a rabbit hole of this discussion uh, every few months? Um, how, how, how are you thinking about this, this resurrection of the dead uh, in this, yeah, um, social, relational and religionless way? Yeah, I think that in um, like academic theological circles and adjacent circles, like resurrection of the dead is is often used as a way to distinguish distinguish yourself from a kind of like dumb traditional Christianity where your your soul goes to heaven or whatever, like very disembodied and like mm-hmm. oh Christianity is bodily and cool and whatever. <laughs> um, and there's also you know, obviously a, a liberal versus conservative divide, you know, like, um, do you literally affirm the resurrection of the dead or not? It becomes a kind of shibboleth. Mm. Um, and I try to just dodge past those um, <laughs> obstacles and simply look at what, look at what the Bible says. Mm. I mean, I'm sure people listening to this uh, podcast would be, you know, surprised to hear me <laughs> it like that, but I really... And and what the methodologies that you mentioned, the social relational and the um, non-religious, this comes from um, my dissertation, which was published with shamefully little revision as uh, Politics of Redemption. Um, I lay it out there and I say, basically social relational, um, I find that in the accounts of why Christ actions, why is incarnation, death, and resurrection save us or have anything to do with us? Like there must be a connection among human beings. Like in, an individualistic account cannot make sense of what is supposed to have happened in Christ. Uh, so the individualism of the Christian tradition can't be right. And also um, tied in with that, um, I follow Bonhoeffer in kind of defining the structure of religion as being like the drama of God and the soul. Um, that God is concerned with the, you know, the state of the interior state of your soul. And you need to cultivate that um, to, you know, often to the detriment of, of social reality. So, and that is tied up with a lot of other theological concepts like divine transcendence or kind of like divine impassibility or like the leads you to think that the resurrection was a miracle um, that then sets up the kind of shibboleth of like, do you really believe in the transcendent God and and all this kind of thing. And so by sifting through the biblical evidence uh, taken in roughly chronological order, you know, just, I read through first Corinthians 15, then through the resurrection accounts in the, in the gospels and the kind of um, consensus order, Mark, Matthew, Luke, um, and John. And I find that, this, these kind of assumptions that um, that Christianity is really about social connection, that it's not about um, saving your soul, like those are really borne out. Like a lot of those, um, a lot of those presuppositions um, don't make sense in precisely this incredibly important area of theology and of the Christian story. Um, and it's really uh, one of the articles I'm proudest of in my um, 
you know, my, my positive theological phase. And I would still stand behind it that that's really what is going on in the biblical mm. texts. Mm. Um, Yes, yeah. It, it, yeah, to, to, as you said, you you know, people might be surprised, but it's a very close, extended reading uh, of the biblical text. And I guess it, it is really interesting where you you push to. We won't, we won't give away the farm here because people have to buy the book. But like you know, th- this move toward you know that th- that it's about us, right? Like that what this move, you know, what this push through of the resurrection stories is about us, um, and that you know, then you and you got, which I think is really important. And then you, you know, this idea of that resurrection is not even is not an exclusive tool to god like to a transcendent god that you know that that can that can exist in others that it's not only gods to possess that but then importantly it's not only ours to possess either um you know very much possession being uh, anathema to this whole idea so like i really i appreciate where you kind of push that toward in this sense of um you know what the, the the holy spirit and 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 the resurrection about being becoming us becoming human humans together in community rather than something right. metaphysical i guess and that mm. builds on um you know traditions that i studied in in politics of redemption that are like that are thinking of um salvation in political and social terms you know that that jesus is coming to save us from the devil and that in a way we've been trapped in a in a bad social contract by adam and eve unwisely deciding to follow the devil's advice rather than god's commands um and that jesus is trying to create a new rallying point a new um center for a new social contract and it's striking in these biblical texts like you'd think this is like the triumphant moment. This is just like the moment of glory, right? That Jesus mm. is like, yeah, I was right. See, I really was the son of God, you know, suck on that. <laughs> he always is trying to direct attention away from himself. Like it's mm. stunning how often in the biblical texts, after he's been resurrected, he appears to be just some guy. And his closest friends don't recognize him. Like they think he's the gardener or they think he's just another random fellow traveler. And that, and I think that's important. And I think that that's put in there very intentionally to kind of push the, the focus away from the person of Christ onto the community that he is founding. And I think that the transition from Luke to Acts does that too, that, that um, Peter and John and Paul, I haven't tabulated it, but I would be willing to bet that they each do at least as many and as powerful of miracles or, or signs, or, you know, I don't want, want to use the word miracle apparently, but they do, uh, they do as many wondrous yes. things as Jesus do, does and probably more. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even like, you know, you pointed out the, you know, the Jesus appearing in these ways of often, you know, surprising more normal ways. It's also like, if you think about it, if the, if the focus was really trying to be on Jesus as you know this resurrected I here I showed you so you devote a lot more time to it like you know they, the, the fact they each spend so little on like hey this is what happened after he came back um yeah. Mark allegedly maybe even barely does at all um is is you know something to be thought about um and, and I appreciate that you thought about it so that, yeah that's great so the last part of the book, part three, we kind of hinted at a couple of times. Um, it kind of more recent work and 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 this um, move toward critique. And so the first chapter of that is this modernity's original sin, 
toward a theological genealogy of race. And, and I want to come to this chapter specifically in a moment, but I was, I, was, I was thinking first to talk a bit about like genealogy, like, and, and it's, um, work within political theology and, and, and just theology writ large. I feel like, I mean, I could be way off base here, but I feel like there's been a um, proliferation of this kind of work in the last few years, like um, Anna Jar's Blood or even Willie James Jennings' Christian Imagination, um, I mean, and a host of others that, you know, are out there that, that seek this kind of genealogical tracing, you know, a modern concept through a kind of a theological and political trajectory that goes back several hundred years for, for those maybe you know am i right in saying that this is you know something that's kind of emerging or, or, or proliferating or becoming a more expansive category and i guess what drew you to thinking of, of of this as a way to to get at what's going on um here now um as, as a particular kind of project yeah i think that um one consequence of the the insight of political theology that the two um that pol politics and theology tend to correspond is that concepts can move back and forth between the two realms mm -hmm. like our patterns of thought that are useful in one will be useful in the other because they're they're kind of doing a similar thing at any given time and um i think it's not controversial to say that during the medieval period in the west um, a lot of the most important uh, social conflicts and norms were encoded more often in theological terms than in political terms. Mm -hmm. That there, there was a, a dominance of the theological side, uh, whereas like explicit political or political theory was was relatively impoverished at that time. Mm -hmm. And what really convinced me that this approach had legs, as it were, was reading um, Giorgio Agamben's book, *The Kingdom and the Glory* where he kind of, he very patiently goes through the biblical and patristic and medieval texts and shows that the concept of how God is supposed to govern the world um, plays out in the modern world with how the market, you know, mm. governs our interactions. That God um, is always kind of, um, you know, using like nudges uh, <laughs> us towards the, the right um outcome or he kind yeah. of takes our often selfish decisions and kind of turns them towards something that's more good or positive mm. and this is exactly what the market is supposed to do and he shows like kind of in the last chapter of that book or it's an appendix actually i don't know why he this is like his slam dog part and he barely talks about it uh, <laughs> but he said like the invisible hand was god's hand mm. like obviously straightforwardly like the you know Adam Smith or Rousseau or whoever themselves would say yes of course I would t I took that from from Calvin <laughs> I took that for like it was a great idea why wouldn't I um, <laughs> and <laughs> so that was a real eye opener for me too because the root of it was so unexpected because he he mm -hmm. puts it in like the way that they use this particular Greek term um, oikonomia that's translated as economy in discussions of the Trinity and like. The idea not only that this key concept of modern life is like theological in nature, but that it had such a weird, unexpected starting point. I'm like, mm. ooh, couldn't more things be like that? Wouldn't that be fun to uncover them? And I think yes. a lot of people have have been inspired in the same mm. in the same way. And I would say that um, 
where this has become most advanced is in um, discussions of race, although they tend to be, um, the studies that I've seen tend to be a little bit more kind of um, focused around like the centuries right around 1492 um, and not necessarily um, the kind of much longer view that I take in the, in the essay. Mm. Well, let's talk about the essay then a little bit. So, uh, you know, you, you start kind of, you're talking about the paradox of original sin that, you know, we're both, we're all born morally damaged, but also that's your fault. Like you're responsible for that. Um, and then you write that. So between the waning years of the Roman empire, when Augustine formulated the doctrine and the dawn of modernity, European Christians had centuries of practice with the conceptual contortions necessary to hold someone morally accountable for the circumstances of their own birth. And my, your guiding hypothesis in this essay is that they carried over these same habits of thought when it came to justify their acts of conquest and enslavement. Again and again, they hit on the notion that the colonized and enslaved were not only intrinsically inferior, but for that very reason, were morally deserving of their treatment. So I guess, yeah, as you say, you're, you're reaching further back here beyond, you know, that, that Middle Ages thing to, 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 to Augustine wrestling with original sin. And, yeah, I'm really interested in, the, in that, you know, the way that this kind of becomes this, um, that, that was practice in a sense for what then was, was carried out on race. Um, and you bring this all into a, you know, a, 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 a very detailed consideration of, of what you say is often a cliched expression that America's original sin is slavery, but you mm -hmm. push that really, you know, let's, okay, let's take that very seriously. What does that mean in both these senses of being, being um, born morally damaged and being responsible for that? So yeah. again, like, you know, we're not giving away the farm. People are going to read this chapter, but, but if you, you, you talk, talk to us a little bit about, about this and like, was it one of these ones where you had this kind of hunch that I think if you go further, you'll see more um, or was it kind of, you surprised yourself in the way that this kind of held as you went through it. And I guess, I guess as, as you kind of think, what, what are you hoping that, you know, people who really do try to wrestle with this, particularly, I guess, maybe those who still, for whom original sin still has some currency, what are you hoping right. that maybe, maybe that, what this chapter um, pushes them to, toward? Yeah, I think that um, a lot of people who embrace the doctrine of original sin uh, want to think of it as like this this radical bracing insight you know that um, like I think it was Niebuhr who said that you know it's the one Christian doctrine that's been empirically mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. validated and I mean I'm very skeptical of that claim and I'm I wonder what happens to a culture in a society where everybody is told that they can't do the right thing, that mm. they're, they're damaged and they can never do the right thing on their own. Mm. Like, how does that play out? Does it become a self-fulfilling prophecy? And I think that in the case of um, colonization and enslavement, it obviously did, um, and that they used that exact same conceptuality um, to kind of um, identify uh, the the slave and the the colonized subject as somebody who is who is morally damaged and needs to be punished. Um, a lot of the confirmation of this thesis came from uh, sitting down and reading Fanon and uh, and Black Skin White Masks. Uh, he 
you know, it's, it's very, it's not like one single quotable quote, although he does say at one point, like it serves them right. They shouldn't have been black, Mm. which I could hear like a million American politicians saying, you know, or like people, you know, who say, well, yeah, if he didn't want to get shot by the police, he shouldn't have been Mm. black. Mm. Like people stop just short of saying that all the time. Mm. And I also got a lot of insight from Sadia Hartman's book, um, whose title is now embarrassingly escaping me. Do you remember what it is? <laughs> I'm trying to see if I can find it. <laughs> so I'm on the computer. I could look it up. Oh, geez. I'm in that chapter on the, uh, on the theme, but I'm not. Scenes of subjection. Okay. Go. So I also learned a lot from, um, Sidia Hartman's scenes of subjection about the way that the slavery regime and then the, the post-slavery um, segregation regime in the South relied on like um, trapping uh, black people into situations where their freedom can only harm them, uh, where they have no choice but to do the wrong thing and then get punished for it um, as though they're morally accountable. Mm. And actually the the more distant root of this idea, um, and I realized this when I was working on the chapter, is, is when I was doing my dissertation research, um, in a way I was pushing this, uh, the, the topic in the direction of race. And specifically, there's a passage in Anselm that I quote in the essay where he says, um, the angels are not able to be saved um, because they're not part of a race. Like the reason that Jesus is able to save us is because humans are part of a race mm. and therefore the effects can, you know, apply to the entire race. Whereas angels, since they don't sexually reproduce, they're not related to each other. Each of them is their own species in a way. And so there would have to be like an incarnate one for each single right. angel. And I'm like, is this, what does this have to do with the concept of a species? What does this have to mm. do with the concept of race? And I was thinking, I mean, this was in 2007, 2008, like the discussion around race was, was very different then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wouldn't have matched up with the concerns of like a kind of post Black Lives Matters um, moment. But I was thinking of it in terms of like race as, as a factor of salvation mm-hmm. initially and how this could be like the, um, the key to understanding more modern concepts of race. And I think that in a way that's the direction that Anajar takes it to in blood. He says like, um, it's not just Christianity's identification against outside groups like the Jews or like um, the colonized or something. It's, it's their own self identity. That's important too. And the way they conceive mm. that self identity. But in this essay, I'm thinking more about the way that they talk about denigrated others. And when I was first thinking about this essay, um, I would always get pushback and they'd say, well, original sin is about everybody mm. and race is only about that particular race. So how do you bridge that gap? And the conceptual um, bridge there is the Christian view of the Jews mm. as a subset of humanity that has a kind of redoubled original sin mm-hmm. um, that has an extra burden on top of like the, the standard original sin that everybody has mm. um, going back to um, 
you know, like we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. Um, and like, so again, not only do they have the conceptual tools to think about being morally responsible with the circumstances of your birth, they also have this kind of hierarchy between, you know, just between two groups at this point, but like they have the idea that there can be, even though we're all affected by original sin, you know, Mm. some people are more, more so than others or some subgroups that are more denigrated than others. Mm. That's really helpful. I was thinking, you know, because there's a sense you talked earlier about the redemption and resurrection requiring this kind of, there's a universality. Um, in humanity, I think you know if you, if you take so we this is universality in our moral damaged, you know, sinfulness, and because of Jesus, there's a universality in our ability to be redeemed and reconciled. So if that's available to all of us, then then inequality in the current it, it can't be to do with you did it, you know, it, you had the opportunity to be saved to be mm-hmm. for it to be changed, and now it's this sense of you didn't right and and that's that's your fault like there's a sense you know if, if reconciliation is available to all um and particularly i think about in australia where we you know conservative governments would like to talk a point to a couple of you know piecemeal bits of legislation to say now we have been reconciled so now thus any difference any disparity any gap in inequality is the fault of those um because there's this universal thing of how we've all we all have, we're down in our luck and we've all and some of us have made it out um, so I think, yeah, it is really helpful where you kind of push this through this and, 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 and examine this doctrine of original sin and the way it functions in, yes, in both ways, both the, um, particularly in that second way of being responsible. So, yeah, mm-hmm. thank you for that. We, we're coming, we're running out of time. I mean, it's such a good conversation. There's, there's, there's heaps more we could talk about. And particularly, I, you know, I thought about a few of my friends who I know are working on Bonhoeffer and, and I, I'm going to infuriate them by not asking you about Bonhoeffer, but they should definitely check out your chapter there and your your arguments toward Bonhoeffer. Um, and there's more in this part three critique. But, but yeah, it, it's such a rich book with so much uh, to be wrestled with and grabbed onto. So I definitely recommend people, people get it and I, and I really appreciate your work on it. Uh, is there anything like you're working on next or anything you want folks to be attentive to or anything else you want to plug in this moment? Well, I mean, <laughs> mainly I'm just working on keeping up with my teaching and getting back accustomed to, you know, being around people instead of being on Zoom all the time. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I tried to to take a bit of a, a break from undertaking new projects. I tend to be a little bit of a workaholic and so um the summer i tried to to relax and now um let the let this book speak for me for for a while i've been i've been pleased by uh what little um signs of the reaction that i can see through through twitter uh, one is always afraid that the book will fall stillborn from the press <laughs> this one is it, it doesn't seem to have so and and i really appreciate um you taking the time to talk with me about it too so yeah no that's been great so folks please check out uh what is theology and uh if you've already got it or once you've got that check out uh adam's other books in particular uh neoliberalism's neoliberalism's demons which maybe we'll have to have you on to talk about that at some stage if if you still want to talk about a book that old but uh um um, but no i really appreciate this conversation and um yeah i hope you have a good semester going forward and um yeah we'll hopefully speak again sometime all right sounds good